So with that, I just want to pray quick. Father, Lord, we just thank you for this beautiful day, for the weather. We thank you for all the miracles you've done in, in, the, in the midst of us and the freedoms, Lord. We, we know there's been uh, trials, Father, but we thank you, Lord, that even though the enemy tries to steal the joy at this festival of joy, you have given us this joy that is per, a persevering joy, Lord, because we know you, Father. And so, Lord, we come to you and we ask, Father, help us to teach us what is the spiritual lesson about this feast. Help us to not just keep it in an outward religious way without learning and understanding and applying the spiritual lessons that you want us to learn individually at this feast. And we ask, Father, right now, Lord, pray that you would speak, Father, right now, just through this message about that to us. In the name of Yeshua, Amen. Amen. So, the feast of of Sukkot is beautiful. And as you, many of you know, it, it's, it, it represents the marriage supper of the Lamb. We have the unfulfilled full feast of the Father, Day of Atonement, right? We have um, uh, Sukkot, right? We have all these feasts that are very much, it seems like, before Sukkot, feasts like trumpets and Day of Atonement, feasts of, you know, kind of like gloomy feasts, a feast of, which represent judgment, joy because He's coming back, but judgment because He's coming back, right? It's He's coming back to judge the world, and judgment starts at the household of God, is also what he says. Right? So, we need to, it's a season of t- getting our house in order, and it's a, it's a beautiful time, and it's cyclical. Like every year we have it, and it's necessary. Because, man, if, imagine, I can't, now since I'm, I've been keeping it, I can't imagine going without them because they help me keep myself in check, audit myself. That's what the Father asks of us audit your heart. Why do you do what you do? That's the big thing. It's one thing to do what he's told us to do, but why do you do what you do? Because the reason you do what you do is the difference, can even be the difference between salvation and not salvation. It is a massive deal. There are people who, we're going to talk about that, but there are people throughout scriptures who did things that were in the Bible, commandments, but they did it with wrong motives and hearts. Wicked hearts, in fact, that were all about the outward and they just for the appearances of men. But God is after us doing things for the right reasons. And so when I um, came to, our, you know, when Father started revealing the beauty of his festivals to me, or for that matter, any of his truths, whether that's even Yeshua, right? Just coming to the basic understanding of Jesus, Yeshua, he died for me, right? Or then later maybe his feast days, maybe his Holy Spirit. And so I want to ask you the question, is when you, when Father revealed a truth to you, whatever it is, right, throughout your life, you know, there's many times that will happen, but when it happened, how did it make you feel? I mean, isn't it, for me, it was one of the most exciting things ever. And actually, a few weeks ago, I met someone who, she, she was an atheist her whole life, and then suddenly, you know, God revealed, she was like against God, you know, but then suddenly God revealed himself in a way and she saw him and she accepted him and she was so excited. She has never been as excited as she was at that point because she really, for the first time in her life, realized what she was made for, right? And that's what God's truths do for us is it, it's like, wow, we were made for this. And so, I don't know about you, but when Father reveals his truth, I kind of, I kind of start feeling like, this 
Like, you know, when a child discovers crayons for the first time and, and what do they do? They're like, wow, and they just are rubbing it all over their faces or, you know, maybe it's mud and they're just like rubbing it over their faces and they're so excited about it and they cover themselves in it and then they run to mom and dad and like, mom, dad, look at how I look, right? And mom and dad's like, hey, yeah, <laughs> right? It's like this. Oh, uh, yeah, that's, oh, no, but now we need to clean it up, right? This mess, right? It's kind of this double-edged sword kind of thing. And isn't that kind of how it is when we come to the truth or when we come to some revelation? Is we, we like to cover ourselves and then we get so excited and we just want to show everyone, right, about it. And the people are kind of like, they have that reaction of like, oh, yeah, that's, that's cool. But it's kind of like they... What it can mean for them is is weird or, you know, they're maybe not at the same place. They don't have the same revelation because oftentimes, if you're an atheist, let's just say, and you come to Messiah, hey, you're going to typically have a lot of atheist friends, right? You're going to be in environments that you've been in because of your non-belief in God. And those people are going to be like, yeah, you know, or, you know, if you're uh, in a congregation and you get a revelation about something that they're not... It's a big thing, and it's it's a. They're going to be like, wow, yeah, and it's it's hard. And and naturally, what we try and do then, which is good, is we try and find like-minded children to play with, if you will, right? We we find like-minded people who share in our beliefs, because then because we we need fellowship, and that's important, right? And that's what happened to me, you know, when the father and this has happened multiple times in fact throughout my life is when the father revealed something to me that's controversial to others around me is i will go and i'll say okay well if and the first time this happened i was like okay you know what if i can just find someone with the same revelation or truth that the father's revealed to me if they have the same knowledge about that you know i'm going to find some people who look like yeshua I'm going to find people who are going to be all about him, sold out for him, just as I desire, and all these things, right? Because the people around me, say, at that point, weren't per se. And I'm like, okay, if I just can find someone with this knowledge, I'll be good. Because right now, I don't have that. But what I found was, is, you know, when I started on this journey of searching for fellowship, I started finding people who had the same knowledge, the same truth and like the revelation but they were some of the most horrible people I've ever met right it's like what happened I had this assumption that that because they have the knowledge and truth that they'll be like Messiah but in fact they were completely the opposite right they were they were prideful self-righteous they were the kind of people who locked themselves in the room and just wanted to point the finger at the world how everyone is so wrong and how they're the only one who's right right very much like the Pharisees. I mean, think about it. The, the, the certain Pharisees that came against Yeshua were ones who had, they read the same Torah scroll. They had the same knowledge, they had the same knowledge about the Sabbath, but yet when we looked at their characters and how they actually walked, it was so different that they persecuted Yeshua for how different he was. You see, it's like, it's funny, so knowledge and the truth that Father has revealed to us does not per se mean that we will have a character that is in line, in line with how Yeshua's character is. But then I also later found people who were some of the most beautiful, amazing people I have ever met who fought, who's now walking in these things. At the fall. Like 
incredible people. Like, wow, they look like Yeshua. They have this humility. They want to care for the poor. They love people. They have, there's, they have self-sacrificial spirits. Like, they want to give themselves up for others, right? And so, how is it that we can have people with, like, two people that have the same knowledge, same revelations, but they look so radically different in their characters. You know, it's like this, so it's, it's, it's kind of scary. You know, the, the word says that you, you can be destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Believers, we will be destroyed if we have a lack of knowledge. The word is very much for knowledge, right? God desires us to have knowledge. And, you know, in Isaiah, he says, you know, they, were, they consider my law as a strange thing. Right? It's, it's foreign to them. They don't have the knowledge about it. And it's dangerous. But then at the same time, the word says that knowledge puffs up. So the word says, knowledge is good, but watch out for it because it puffs up. It's kind of like this interesting dichotomy that we're dealing with here. You see, here's the thing. You can be destroyed for a lack of knowledge. But you can also be destroyed for an abundance of it when you have no love. When you have no love. And that's the thing is we sometimes think, and I was there, we think that because I have knowledge, that is the thing that qualifies me before God. That is the thing that makes me righteous before Him. That is the thing that makes me okay. It's because I have the knowledge. But what if I told you that you have knowledge, but that knowledge is not because of you. That knowledge is grace. That knowledge is mercy. That knowledge is a gift from God because he revealed it. He's the one who opened your eyes. He's the one who gave it, who showed it to you. But it's what you do with it that's going to be the thing that determines your character output, what you're, who you're actually going to be, what you're going to be, look like. You see, here's the thing. God says that he opposes the proud. Now, look, I don't know about you, but there's many things in life that I would be in this, and in this world that I would be in opposition to. But if it comes to God, that's the last thing I want to be in an opposition to. Because think about what that says for a second. We read over this casually sometimes. But what he's saying there is, if, you have, if you're prideful, if you're a prideful person, you are in opposition to me. You know what God's, who God's opponents are? We're talking about the devil himself. We're talking about his demons. We're talking about the kingdom of darkness. God says that if you have pride, I don't care how much knowledge you have, how much revelations you think you have, but if you have the pride issue, you are not part of my kingdom. In fact, you are in opposition to it. And that's what the Pharisees were. They were in opposition. They had the knowledge, but they were the biggest opponents to Yeshua himself. It's, it wasn't, never mind the, the, the sinners, the alcoholics, prostitutes, atheists, whatever. Never mind the people who deny God outright. The biggest opponents to him were the ones who don't deny that he's there. But the ones who know he's there, but have pride. And try and serve him by actually serving themselves. By actually worshipping themselves. And they say, this is how, this is my worship to God, is my worship to myself, really. Because everything they did, they did for themselves. But the scary thing was, is that they thought, that they, they, they were lying to themselves so deeply that they thought they were doing this for God. That's the scary thing. 
is I, I think a lot of the Pharisees weren't like twirling like their mustaches and they were like, I'm going to figure out how to you know, do this and that and I'm this evil person. No, they were like, I, I, I worship God. I try to worship God. And they were so deceived that they thought that what they were doing, they were doing for God. Their persecution, Paul himself, he thought he was zealous for God. He thought what he did in his killing of um, believers was for his, for his God, right? That's a scary thought. And so we need to really be careful and look at, are we deceiving ourselves? Where, are, where is our heart and why do we do what we do? How do we consume knowledge without being destroyed for a lack of love? That's really the big question. Because we're in this place, if you're sitting here, God has revealed knowledge. He's given you knowledge. He's given you truth. But how do you retain it? How do you walk in it? Which is, we, we have to. But how do you do it without losing your love? Because that's what often happens. I have been in this movement for a while and I've seen it. People come in and they lose their love, right? And so at the festival of Sukkot, God actually teaches us this. This is what he does at this feast. He's trying to teach us how do we have living water, even though we can have knowledge. So for example, with Yeshua, he, he talked and he said in John 7, 37, on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because he was not yet glorified. So he says, come, if you believe in me, just as from my heart flows rivers of living water, the same will happen to you. But here's the question is, why water? Why did God use this picture of water? He could have picked many things, but see, water is this thing, this thing we have right in this world that we can't taste it, right? It, it has no taste. Um, it it's flavorless compared to, in fact, we put flavor in water to make it taste better, some of us, right? Maybe not a good idea, but we do that, right? Water is tasteless. But yet, it's like something in us knows when we're thirsty, right? And we need it. We know that we need it. And like I mentioned the other day, is like you, you also sometimes find yourself in this place where you're like, so thirsty, but you actually, you forget because you're busy, you're in your life and you, but until you see that glass of water on the table, when you see it, you're like, wow, I'm, I'm actually so thirsty, right? And you just realize it when you see it. And that's how people are in this world. They're all thirsty, so thirsty, hungry, unfulfilled, right? And it's only until they see that water on the table and until they see what they need that they're like, well, that is the, what is missing. That is the thing that I need. And this is why Yeshua says, talks about the living water. Because that living water is for others. It's to be poured out. That's the point of it. He doesn't say you're going to have living water. It's just going to be here in your belly and you're going to swell up with water. No. It's, you're supposed to be this living spring, this well that's going to give water to the world, the people around you who are thirsty but who may not even know it, right? And he says that if you believe in me, as the scripture has said, but what does it mean to believe? You know, you know, we were taught that, you know, you ask Jesus to come live in your heart and then you believe. This intellectual ascension, right? But no, belief is that hunger, 
that thirst for righteousness, that I need to walk like you did, Yeshua. I need to be, I need to have that action. I need to be like you in every way, not just I believe that you're true. The demons believe and they shudder. Sometimes we don't even shudder. But the demons believe and they shudder, but they don't have the works. They don't look like him. They don't walk like him. That's the difference. What sets you apart from a demon? Because it's going to be your walk. It's going to be the, the fact that you walk differently. And if you do, that is true belief. That is what it means to believe. Because if you believe, you will do what he said. The one who says he believes but does not do what he said is a liar and the truth is not in him. And he's a liar to even himself. Many people have lied to themselves, convinced themselves, I'm a believer. They call themselves a Christian. But their lives look totally the opposite of what it's supposed to look like. And they are completely convinced in their mind that they're okay and right. And that's perhaps the biggest, like I said, the biggest, the most scary thing for me is that we can even lie to ourselves. And so I want to ask you the question of what is the primary reason for you being here? Why are you at this feast? Why did you come and pitch up? Why did you come and pitch a tent? Why did you come and sit? And why? Glory to God. Thank you. But what is the main reason that you're here? Is it because you wanted to come and camp? Because you wanted to come and have a holiday, a time off? That's good. It's good. All fine reasons. Is it because you have a self-preservation that you want to retain? In other words, you're afraid that if I don't keep this feast, I'm going to go to hell? Or, or is it because mom and dad keeps the feast, so I keep the feast, and that's what I do? Is it a tra- has it become the new tradition? Has it become the new cultural hip thing to do? Is it because you were in a church and you got hurt and now you're in rebellion and now you're just trying to do everything opposite than what they're doing? That why? What is the main reason that you're here? Look, some of those reasons are good. They're, they're nice. It's, it's, it's part of it is why we are here. But what is the main reason? Right? Is it those things or is it to worship God? You see, what is the motivation why are you here? Did you, when you came here, was it, what was running through your mind? What was it? What was the thing? Was it, oh, I'm going to go there, Father, and I'm going to be able to worship you by my keeping of the feast. I'm going to be able to grow. I'm going to be able to have a life that is a living sacrifice unto you. That's why I'm going, Father. Or was it just because I want to go camp? Just because I want to go have fellowship? Those are fine. But see, bro, here's the thing. The reality is in America today, and not just America, the Western world, and because we don't have persecution, we have churches today, and this is, I am saying this from because I have seen it and witnessed it, and I've spoken to these people, pastors, I have spoken to a pastor before, for example, leads a big church, he's an atheist, he doesn't believe in God, he leads a church, and there are people, obviously, in that church who are also unbelievers, because the power of God's not there. No conviction, of course, all that. But they come because it's community. It's a place where they can meet people. It's a place where they can fellowship, even if that fellowship is void of God. There are many religions in the world who have fellowships. Mosques. Right? There's, it's, people desire that because God made us to want fellowship. But we can go and try and have fellowship without him. And so that's the the big thing is why do we do what we do? Because you can go to church but be lost. You can come to a feast like this but be lost. You can keep a Sabbath but be lost. Why do you do what you do? 
You see, the difference between Yeshua and a Pharisee, like I said, they read the same Torah scroll. They're up there, they're in the synagogue, right? They're, they're doing, but the, their motivations for what they did was different. And that had a different character output. You know, the difference between someone who's blind and the one who sees is this. The one who sees is one who can see the mercy, the love, and the depths of that, of God's love, right? The depths of God's love and mercy. And then be able to see the void in their hearts for it. Because if you're blind to God's mercy and love, how can you see the void? People who are blind to it, they can't see the void that they have, so they don't think there's a void of love. They think they're fine. That's what truly the blind is. Blind doesn't mean that, um, or to see, doesn't mean that I, I see the Torah, and, or even I think the Torah is necessarily, there are people who believe the Torah is true, but are lost. Okay, that's like, whoa. That's like, have you ever thought about that? There are people who don't see Messiah, but who believe in the, that the Torah is truth. Right? That's like, whoa, like, we have to be so careful. Like, do we actually, it's about knowing the love of God. It's about knowing the grace of God. Because see, if you know and understand that, you, the rest will come by itself. Because you will be one to become love, because where you're not loved, you're going to be like, well, I'm not love in this place of my heart, and I need to become love there. Right? And then you'll be able to be Yeshua. Because God is love, that's who He is, that's what He is, He's love. And so, the, before I go there, let me go back. The thing is with the, um, the, the difference between the disciples and the Pharisees, or Yeshua and the Pharisees, is, you know, they all were in the synagogues, they all went to churches, if you will, or whatever, but they were there for different reasons again. Like the, the disciples were there, they wanted to preach, learn, serve, teach, worship God. The Pharisees oftentimes were there because, and Yeshua said it himself, this is why I can say this, is they wanted to have the front row seat in the, in the synagogue. You know, they wanted to sit, have the main seat at the feast. Or they wanted to go because it is what they do. It's their occupation if they were, serve, if they were in the you know, a synagogue. And that's not necessarily a wrong thing, but that was the main reason. Or it was their social circle, it was their tradition, it was what they do. And that's why corruption crept in, because they did it for the wrong reason. It was all about themselves and building their own kingdoms, even while they're in the houses of God. They're trying to build their own kingdoms right there. And so when we look at you know, what we call the Last Supper, where, where Yeshua was with his disciples, I mean, think about this, guys. Judas is there. Peter is there, you know, the rest of the disciples, they're there. I mean, Judas, if you look at him, he kept the festivals of God. He walked with Messiah. He kept the Sabbath. Even probably better than the Pharisees because he walked with Messiah while he was doing it. He even had the honor of dining with the Messiah here. Sitting at his table. Like, you know, I can just imagine that in the first century, when the disciples, you know, were at this point, people were looking up to them. Like, the people who, were, who saw Messiah, right, who saw Yeshua as the Messiah, they were like, wow, they, they get to be with him all the time, right? They get to be his disciples. They get to be eating with him. And, you know, everywhere he goes, he, they go, right? It's like, wow. And they may have probably even looked up to Judas to some degree. 
Like he's the one who takes care of, of Yeshua's accounting. Like, wow, he must be such a great guy. Like, right? And but Yeshua allowed him at his table at that point. And he was keeping the feast. He was doing, but what was the difference between Judas at that table and Peter, for example? They were both taking this thing, doing this thing we call communion, right? The, where Yeshua to, told them about the, the bread and the wine and how it represents his body and his blood, about what his, his sacrifice, right? What he was going to do. And they're both partaking in it, right? The one was partaking of it worthily, and the other was partaking in it unworthily. Because the one understood the full spiritual teaching of the feasts, while the other one never did and never applied it. Judas kept the feast religiously, but not inwardly, not spiritually. Peter kept the feast. Yeah, outwardly, of course, he does, did the things, but also inwardly, spiritually. You see, every single one of the feast days of God has not been given to just let us camp and just let us have, do all these things which are good, but it is to teach us something deeper. And you can come to feast for 20, 30 years, but unless you actually apply the teachings that the Father desires us to learn from them, you might as well stay at home. It means nothing. You need to understand what is it, look, what was it that the, the communion, what we call it today, right? When they were taking part, what was it that, father, that Yeshua was teaching them? Right, he was, he was saying, this is my body and blood. You need to partake of this. Paul talks about this later. He talks about how we need to partake of this and it is a, repent, a time of repentance, right? You can't go and take part of Messiah's body and blood and say, Father, this represents your sacrifice. I partake. Thank you that you have done this for me. Thank you. And then while you're doing it, you have sin in your heart. Like Judas. He's partaking in the things of the feast. He's doing all these things, but sin in his heart. Sin is ruling his heart in the midst of it. And Paul said even in this word, Paul said when he wrote his letters, he said, and because there are many of you who partake in these things unworthily, many of you sleep even. That means dying. It means some of you are dying because you are partaking in the things of God that are, that are outward, but they are deeper than that. They are supposed to have a deep change in you taking place. And if you, but if you take part unworthily, you're actually bringing judgment upon yourself. And that's what Judas did. He brought judgment upon himself. That's why he died shortly after this event. It's because he was sitting at the feast he was, or sitting at these things but he did not truly come in repentance while he was doing so. So I ask the question today is, why are you here? Are you here to just partake in the religious aspect of a feast? Or are you coming here and saying, Father, change me, show me. What do I need to change? You see, he sh shows us, he is with, with the Feast of Sukkot, he is our tabernacle, our shelter. He is the place where we go and he gives us the, the break, right? He's the safe space, the place where we go. But before we come into that safe space, we have the Day of Atonement, right? The day of afflicting our soul, fasting, that's what, or whatever, you know. And, you know, we read in, in Isaiah of how he says, is this not the fast that I have chosen? For one to go, and we're going to read that in a second, but he talks about how it's about going and feeding the poor, the orphan, the widow, looking after the lost, going and doing these things, right? That are like, he says, that is what I mean when I say afflict your soul, is, is, is making a sacrifice for another person, loving your neighbor. Comes back to that first commandment, loving God and your neighbor. 
You try and keep the feast, but you don't even do that. What? You go home. Go home. It means nothing if you can't love your neighbor and love God. Because you love God by loving your neighbor. That's part of it, by the way. And if you don't do that, go home. It, this is not the fast. I haven't chosen a fast that is different from that. You can do the outward thing. Fast. Do it. Don't eat food. Do it. Glory to God. But don't miss what it actually is supposed to teach you. The spiritual aspect of you putting yourself down, humbling yourself instead of having the pride. Because you know what they did on the day of atonement? As they had sackcloth and ashes. Oh Lord, I fast. Lord, I'm fasting. Oh Lord, I, I look how horrible it is for me. Oh, it's so horrible. I'm fasting. God is like, are you kidding me? Like, like, that's not the fast that I have chosen for you. That's not what I meant. Why do you do what you do? Right? And so here's the thing before I go. I just want to say, like, when we look at Judas is he had aspects, elements, characteristics of, of what we would, would call a false prophet in many ways. Right? He was not per se someone who went out and, and was like a false prophet, like how we can traditionally think about it. However, he had many of the same characteristics. Think about it this way. Do you think really that when Judas was a little child and his mom and dad asked him what he wants to be when he grows up, like we all ask our children, he said, Mom, Dad, I want to be the betrayer. Right? I want to be a false prophet or I want to be... No. Are you kidding me? No. That's not what he said. I don't know what he said, but he didn't say that, I can tell you. <laughs> and here's the thing is, a false prophet or someone who's, who's against God, like I said, in all of their in mind, usually, they're convinced that they're okay. They're doing things for God. He was convinced he's okay. He's sitting at the table of Messiah. He thought he's okay. He thought it's going to turn out all right. Who in their right mind would go and do things if they, no one who's knowing that they're going to go to jail, they will commit the crime. Hey, that crime can be a crime, but if they know guaranteed that they'll go to jail, they'll probably not do it, right? They try and get away. That's the point. Judas thought he's going to get away with this. That's what, how we try and motiv motivate ourselves to do bad things. Our hearts are wicked. A false prophet is a false prophet because he only, ha only has second-hand knowledge of Scripture. He only, look, when Yeshua went into the wilderness, he was being led, he was being baptized, right? He got baptized. And then it says that the Spirit of God led him out into the wilderness and there to be tempted by the devil. So God tested, he, he had to be tested like all of us because he walked a, a life in the flesh like all of us. And he was tested like we were all tested. And so in that same way, God sends false prophets, prophets among us to test us. He says actually in Deuteronomy, he says, You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or the dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you. Whether you love him with all your mind, heart, everything you have or not. He is the one that allows it to happen oftentimes. Because he wants to see what will you pick? What will you do? Will you bow down before the kingdom of, the, of this world? Like when the Satan came to Yeshua? Or would you say, no, that's not what the word of God actually says. 
Because see, like I said, a false prophet has second-hand knowledge. He only knows what someone has taught him. He doesn't have that personal relationship with God. He hasn't personally devoured the Word and studied it out for himself. And so he'll be able to quote Scripture perfectly, like very well, even better than you. But he will quote it in a way that is just demonic, just wrong, out of place, out of context, void of its true meaning. Because Satan was quoting scripture right there. He knew scripture well. He does. Or the kingdom of darkness, it knows scripture. It knows what it says. It's not like it's ignorance to it. But it will take it out of its meaning, its context, and it will try and say, make it say something it's not saying to appeal to your flesh. To make it appeal to your prideful desires. You see, if Yeshua did have pride in the wilderness, he would have said, yes, I'll take this kingdom, these, the kingdoms of the world, which he didn't, of course. But that's what the enemy is going to bring us. What are you, in, why are you doing what you do? Right? And so, th that's the thing is the false prophet, he desires to serve himself. And the people who, God allows it and, because the people who will fall for the false prophet are the kind of people who, have, who, who are not of God in the first place. Their hearts haven't been given to God fully. They, they fall for the false prophet because he's giving him, his, he's basically appeasing to our flesh. He's trying to say, look, this is really what you want. Like in the garden, right? The enemy, he's like to Adam and Eve. This is really what you want, right? You want to be like God. Like he's trying to, he's trying to get that. Even though God said you're made, I'm making you my image already. But that's, so... Here's the reason I'm talking about false prophets right now is because I believe that we are going to see more false prophets arising very soon. God has given us mercy and grace in this time where he is revealing the things that we are sitting here about, right? The feast days. He's revealing his spirit. He's pouring it out. He's doing all these amazing things. And we've been in this place where we haven't had a lot, let's be honest, we haven't had a ton of false prophets yet. We have had some. We've had some anti-missionaries. We've had some things. But it's going to get a lot worse for this because God is now, he's revealed it. He's given us time to, to study ourselves approved. And now he's going to see, he's going to test us. He's going to see if there's a false prophet among you, who, what, what's going to happen? Because see, you know, the, 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 the theme of this week was, of this Sukkot here, we had is unity, right? Unity. It's, it's about being together. What does a false prophet try and do? This unity. That's what the enemy tries to do always, is, is come against disunity. I want to submit to you that like, what you guys had, this vision of unity, was spot on. Because God knows what the enemy is going to try and do next. Disunity. And so I want to tell you that the Father is calling us now, at this feast, to make sure we're in unity. Randall said it beautifully about how we get, have these spurts of criticism can have that, right? Or we, 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 we throw someone out or we say, we're not of you or because you believe in something a little bit differently. Not a deal breaker, something little and now we're just like, I can't fellowship with you. No. Look, if you're going to be in that place, you're going to die alone. You need your brothers and sisters. You need the unity because there's going to come false prophets and they're going to try and they're going to try and rip you away. And if you're out there alone, you don't stand a chance because you're going to need brothers and sisters because we need to stand together because we need to sharpen each other, right? The disciples needed each other and they, what makes you think you can do it alone? I can't. There's no way. We need each other. We need people to speak into our lives. We need to talk about these things together. 
And so when we talk about the garden, that's where the Father desires us to go. That's the, that's the destination, if you will. Like he wants to make things the way it was. And that's what Sukkot is kind of, well, that's what it is pointing to. It's basically, God is saying that I desire to bring you back. I want to dis- restore you. I, I didn't just, you know, when they fell in the garden, God could have been like, okay, well, you chose that, bye. He had full right. The law didn't require for him to die for us. It didn't require that of him. He went above and beyond it. He went above and beyond and said, I'm going to die even though I don't need to. Even though, but I love you. You're valuable to me. And I'm going to die for your sins to get you back. Right? And that's what it is. That's what this feast is all about. Is the fact, it's that promise that he promises, that he made the promise that, well, that he died and he promises to come back to restore us so that the new heavens and new earth can come down, right? Now, why did God tell us to rest on the first and on the eighth day at this feast? You see, you need to think about it as on the timeline of, of this life, right? The first day, it, it's, represent, it's pointing to the garden before the fall and the creation, right? When things were just made, that's the first day, the way beginning, in the beginning, Right? And that's, God says, rest on the first day of Sukkot because now you're reminded of that garden experience we had with him. That beautiful time of intimacy with him, right? And then he says, on the eighth day rests because what does, so number seven means rest, of course, which is representing the millennial rest, the millennial reign with Christ, which we will enter. And then we have the eighth day, which eight, the number eight represents new beginnings, because we have a seven-day week, and then eight is the eighth day is the new beginning, right? And so the number one and the number eight is both talking and pointing to that intimacy with that God wants to restore with us, that intimate relationship. Because the first day was that garden relationship that was there, and the eighth day, we're going to have it back restored fully again. Amen. We're not going to have this that we have right now. Yes, he's got his Holy Spirit here. But we're going to enter a place where there's, it's written that there won't be even a temple because he is the temple. There won't even be a sun because he will give light. You know, That's the place that he is taking us to. But now here's the question. What's the difference going to be between the garden and that new heaven and new earth that's coming? Because what, I mean... If it's the exact same thing, if everything is exactly going to be the same, what's going to stop everything from just happening again, the fall happening again? You see, I want to submit to you that the environment is going to be very similar, right? That, that, that closeness with God. But the hearts of the people in it are going to be different. You see, Adam and Eve's hearts, they didn't know, they didn't have the knowledge, they didn't have the full revelation of what it was going to cost. See, when we get there, we're going to know what it costed to get there. Not just for us, but more so for our Messiah. We're going to know what he paid for, his own life, to get us there. Adam and Eve didn't have that revelation. It, the only way for humanity to get that revelation was for it to happen. And that's why God made it happen. Because that was the best way for him. He knows love is an action. And the best, the greatest, what is the greatest love is for a man to lay down his life for a friend 
And that's why he had to do it. He said, I have to. I am love. That's who I am. I have to show you and demonstrate to you. It doesn't, I can't just tell you I love you. Because it, it's not enough. You won't, under, you won't believe me. And we didn't. We didn't believe the depths of his love. That's why we fell. But because we fell, he said, well, let me show you. So you can understand how much I love you. So now when you get there, you're not going to make that mistake again that I and Eve made. You're going to live. And now see, here's the thing. That's going to be the difference between Judas and Peter. They did the same things. They did the same feast. They did the same. But their hearts were different. And that's going to be the thing that makes you different. Not just that you keep a commandment, but that you keep it for the right reason to worship him above all else. Because you love him. Because you see his love for you. You identify. And so now you can love others. That's what it is. And so the water libation ceremony, you may have heard of this. This is, this often is, this is a, uh, that would, which something which accompanied this festival where they poured um, uh, wine and water down onto the altar and they made it hit the altar at the exact same time. The priest did this. Okay. And so we need to ask the question of, I, I want to submit to you that that was, even though that was, that's not a biblical commandment, I want to submit to you that it has deep biblical meaning still. Because I want to submit to you, what when we go to that sacrifice, we just talked about that cost he had to pay, right? That, that price he had to pay. When we look at what happened there, right? He was pierced in his side, and blood and water poured out. Okay, we read about it here. John 19, 34. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once came out blood and water. He who has sword has borne witness, the testimony is true, and knows that he is telling the truth that you may also believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. That's Psalm 34. And again, another scripture says, they will look upon him who they have peers. Zechariah 12. So he's saying like, this is a big deal. The fact that he was pierced, because if he wasn't, there's two prophecies in the scripture that would have gone unfulfilled. It's massive. Like if he wasn't pierced, this would go void and empty. That's a problem. The fact that he, not one of his bones was broken like the two guys next to him, and that he was pierced. They will look upon the one they have pierced. So it's a big deal. He, this, the writer is saying, pay attention. Pay attention to this testimony, the witness of this. And then further we read in 1 John 5, this is he who came by water and blood, Yeshua the Messiah, not by water only, by water and blood, and the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is truth. He's like, stressing it even further, he's like, look, he didn't just come by water, he didn't just come by blood, but by water and blood. What is it about the water and the blood? Why is, he, why is, this, what is, God, why is God stressing it to us to pay attention to this? You see, you need to think about it this way. When he was struck, that was like the end of, of, of it all, right? That was the end of his sacrifice, if you will. And he was poured out as, in a way, a drink offering. And out of him, out of his sacrifice, poured blood and water. That was the, what was produced, if you will. And now earlier, we, when we read about how Yeshua spoke about, if you believe in him, you will, they will come rivers of living water. And he said, this he wrote about the Spirit. He said this about the Spirit, so the water represents the spirit, and the blood, we, we, this one is easy, we know it, the blood represents the remission of sins, the life is in the blood, his life was given for us, we had to die, but he died in our place, 
for the remission of our sins. Now, if you're going to walk up to anyone on the street and you ask them, why did, why did Jesus die? They're going to say, he died for the sins of the world. That's what everyone knows. That's what everyone's been taught. But that's only half of why he died. Literally half of why he died. Because he says, not by blood only, not by water only. Water and blood is what he produced. If you quench the water, if you deny the water, the spirit, if you deny or quench the spirit in your life, you are literally denying and, and rejecting half of what he, he died for you to have. Whew, we don't hear that one. You see that? So if you don't have the water, you can say, I believe in his sacrifice. I believe in his blood. I believe, yeah, 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 yeah. But if you don't have his Holy Spirit, you, can, you can't walk in a way that is an honor of that blood because the Holy Spirit is the one that writes it on your heart, that law, and enables you to walk it out. But not only that, that's only the beginning. He comes upon you and enables you to walk in power like Yeshua did in the gifts of the Holy Spirit and in power like we talked about yesterday. It with, like with Moses, the Holy Spirit came upon him in that moment. And what happened? He came with Pharaoh and God made all the, he gave him, Moses, a gift of miracles and all these plagues was the very thing that showed the world everything, Right? You see, Moses, he's like, God tells him, take the water and pour it out on the ground and it will become as blood. Coincidence? No. It's a picture of Yeshua. It's a picture of what it will do. Because what did Moses do with that? He went to Pharaoh, to Israel, to uh, Egypt, and that was one of the miracles that showed them that this is the Almighty. This is his power. This is why you need to come out to serve him. That is what the Holy Spirit does. That is why if we go to people and we just tell them, you are sinners. You, and it's true, right? We are sinners. The world is in sin. But if we just go and we say, you are sinners, you're going to go to hell. But we don't have the water with that. We don't have the Spirit. We've not shown them His love. We've not shown them His, pow them his power. We've not shown the grace and the mercy of our Messiah because we don't see it because we don't have the water, because we deny the water? Why would they want it? You're only showing them half the gospel, literally. You're only showing them the blood, but you're not showing them the water too. He died to pour out as a drink offering from himself, the blood and the water. You get that? Can I just get an amen? Like, <laughs> come on. Yeah. And so at the wedding of Canaan, I'm finishing up here. The wedding of Canaan, we have the... The, this wedding, right? Yeshua's mother is there and, she, and the, the wine is running out. It's a problem, right? At the wedding, it's, it's a big issue. And, and, and she's like, Yeshua, do something. And he's like, oh, woman, how long should I bear with you? No, I, I can't. And, and he's like, okay, well, fine. And he goes and he instructs his, the, the servants, right? Instructs them to go and take water and pour it into these clay jars to fill them to the brim. Now, why these jars? It's kind of interesting. Like God talks about how we are like these jars. We're like molded. We are like, right? And I want to submit to you that these jars and this story actually represents people. And God is like instructing us to take the water, it's mercy, grace, love, Holy Spirit, that live, those living waters that's supposed to pour from our bellies like because we believe in him. 
And we're supposed to pour it into these people, these jars. And then what happens when they reach, when they're filled to the brim, God is the one that makes the miracle come. And it turns into blood, into wine. You see, the, the blood, now they see, wow, God loves me. They, the Holy Spirit has touched him. They've been filled up with his love, his, his, his peace. And now they're like, I want to repent of my sins. I see the blood that was spilled for me. Now I can follow him. I want to do this. I want this. You see? But he's the one who does the miracle. We do the physical act of pouring the, the people in with him, with his love. But he brings the miracle forth. And that miracle was wine in that case, which by the way is like fruit. Because these jars, these people, after that miracle happens in them, they will be the ones who bear good fruit. They will be the ones who then would be a testimony to the world furthermore. Because what happened? After this miracle happens, the host comes and he's like, wow, this wine? Usually we serve the best wine first. But you... You guys have saved the best for lost. The world will say, I have never had anything like this before. What is it about this wine that is so different? Come on, man. And so when they come and they see that, they're going to be like, I want this, right? And so I want to just read this. This is the Day of Atonement. You may know, come and say, well, Petey, I'm going to read this about the Day of Atonement in a second. Petey, I want this living water. I want to be filled. I want to be the one. Because I want to ask you the question, right? As you're sitting here right now in your life, can you honestly look at your life and say, hey, wherever I go, I am like a spring, a fountain, a river of living water to people around me. Am I that or are you dried up? Are you, are you a dry well? Where are you? And if you feel like, hey, I want that living water. I want to be like Yeshua. I want that what he had. I want, I'm going to just tell you how it works. Because he tells us here, right here in Isaiah. He says in Isaiah 58, why have we fasted? I mentioned this earlier, but just, let's just read through all this, okay? Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, God says this, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress your workers. Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, and bring the homeless poor into your house, when you see the naked to cover him, and not hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, your healing spread forth speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you, and the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from him, it's the pointing of the finger, the speaking of wickedness. If you pour yourself out, 
for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted. Then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will give you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, a spring of water whose waters do not fail. (laughs) Come on. But here's the thing. I want you to notice. He says, before he says, you'll be like a watered garden. He says, you need to pour yourself out. It's kind of like, it's like, imagine we come and we're like, God, I am, I am, I am scorched. I have nothing. I have no water. I'm a dry well. He says, pour yourself out. Because he's the one who brings the water. He's the one who brings the miracle. You see, we sometimes, we can say, we can pray as much as we want, like I've mentioned. Pray, pray, God help me. Give me water. Give me water. Go. And be love. Go and pour yourself out in that moment when you're with that person, when you're pouring yourself out for someone, feeding the poor, looking after the widow orphan, ministering the gospel to someone, whatever it is. In that moment, you may not feel like love the moment before it, but in that moment when you step out, regardless of how you feel, because love is not a feeling, it's an action. Now when you go and you do that, God pours it in. And then, guess what, after that, when you walk away there, you're more changed than the person you encountered. Because now you are like a watered garden. You are like, because that water stays, it fills up, a a well retains water. It's what it's designed to do. Designed to retain its water. But water needs to be poured in first into you, and now you can retain it. And that's that first night when I went and I prayed for those people in Hatfield Square, When I drove away there, I was more changed than anyone I prayed for in that place. Amen. And yeah, thank God and praise God for that. (laughs) And that's what he will do for you. Is if you go and you pour yourself out, you will be the one who's changed. Because I, like I mentioned, I had no love. I was empty, dry, kept the commandments. But it was when I took that step that he filled me. And, and then I met love for the first time. That's when love came to indwell. And I was able to love from there on, on, or there on out. So don't let your world run dry. Be love. And so I'm, I want to conclude with this. When we look at um, Sukkot, right? Where this came from? Why do we call it Sukkot? It, it's because Jacob met Esau, went to meet Esau. Esau. He was at odds with his brother. Well, his brother was angry at him. Well, he thought so at least because he stole his brother's birthright. He, he took his livestock, his family and everything through the wilderness. And he made his brother Esau there. And it's a deep story. I'm not even going to, it's too amazing. I don't have enough time. It's, but we go in there. He goes there. He meets him. Esau forgives him and embraces him. And after that, he goes and he makes booths for his livestock. His livestock has been traveling throughout the wilderness. Hard place with him. And I want to submit to you, that's what the Father does for us in the same way. This is where he says, that place he made booths for his livestock, that was the place he called Sukkot. And in the same way, we are like that livestock. The Father comes and he says, and I want to submit to you, I want to prophesy this over you today, that the Father says, you have been in wildernesses. You have been in hard times and seasons. We have seen it at this very feast. 
And I come and I will make a booth for you. And we will call this place Sukkot. And I will cover you. I will be your covering. I will be your shelter. But you need to come and take shelter under my wings. Let me carry you. Bring your bird and stop holding onto it alone. Stop trying to do it alone. Stop trying to convince that husband alone. Stop trying to convince that wife alone. Stop trying to to do it with everything alone, your relationships alone. Let God do it and say, Father, I'm a vessel. Use me. Let water come from me and nothing else. And then everyone who sees it, they'll want to drink and they'll say, this is what I have been missing. Amen. So Father, we thank you. We thank you, Lord. We pray right now, Holy Spirit, Lord, just come, Lord. And Father, make us springs, fountains of living water who do not fail. Lord, we thank you, Lord, that you are the one who provides the water. You are the one who provided it at your sacrifice. And so we thank you, Father. We don't deserve it, but we thank you. Father, come and indwell us with your Holy Spirit. Let us not reject it. Let us not quench him anymore. Fill us to the brim and let us bear good fruit, Lord. Like at that wedding, bear good fruit. And Father, I thank you, Lord. We are in the last days. I thank you. You have saved the best for last. I thank you. You will come like never before to pour out your spirit upon your people and to set the captives free around us, Father. Lord, we pray right now, Lord. I pray that next year when we come and celebrate the feast again, wherever we do that, that we will come back and say, truly, truly, this year, I was a fountain of living water because of you. Thank you, Father. Amen. So, Father, we thank you, Lord. Lord, for the baptisms that's going to happen, Lord, right now. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity. We thank you for the provision. And, Father, we just give this to you, Lord, that everything will go according to your heart's desires, Lord. Your way, not ours, Father. We give you glory and we thank you in the name of Yeshua. Amen.